Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing Killing Bono. This is about Neil McCormick and his brother Ivan. Bono asked Neil if Ivan could be in the band. Edge had to punch Bono in the face. Uh, he's kicked out of the band. Very cartoonish, very bright. There wasn't enough U2 in it. You wanted this to be about U2 though, didn't you? Something a little bit different for this week. You want to tell the fans what we're doing? Uh, yeah, so we did a long time ago ask what kind of episodes you guys would like us to do. And there has been a bit of a drought recently. Um, so while we're waiting for October and to do the big experience podcast, we thought we would revisit a film that we, I think me and Johnny both saw at the time in 2011 when it came yeah. out. A film called Killing Bono. Uh, again, we always keep seem to keep going back to this 2011 time period where there didn't seem to be a lot going on in the band's band's career. They they, they seem to be off doing. I don't know. Maybe they were maybe they were having a break, but they 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 brought out Actung Baby, the 20th anniversary edition, the mm-hmm. Uber box set, which we still don't own. No. Um, if anyone wants to donate it to us, like if there's any really rich fans of Review Two who just feel like doing us a good turn. Leave it us in your will. I don't, <laughs> I don't want them to die necessarily. Well, no, they don't have to, but you know, just it'd be nice to know that that's coming at some point. All right, well, leave one in your will to Tyler and send me mine now, please, because I want those glasses <laughs> and stickers and all the other stuff. And so, also in 2011, they they did that Glastonbury performance, which we may do at some point, but because we, I think when we last did a shout out for episode suggestions. We kind of exhausted everything we could do with a, with a live podcast. Pretty much, yeah. I don't, I don't have much to say about that Glastonbury performance, apart from it was it was very acting baby heavy and it was pretty good. So, Killing Bono. Yeah, where were you when Killing Bono came out? I have no idea. Probably, uh, probably at uni. I, well, I was in uni. I don't know if you still were. Although you stayed that you stayed in uni for a very long time, didn't you? Well, yeah. Just trying to trying <laughs> to pass that first year. That's that's not true. <laughs> So I I know I was in uni because they had they they were showing Killing Bono a lot in 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 like you know the film department and I don't know I don't know if they, it was on on the film course or something like that but uh, in the cinema in uni it was uh, Killing Bono was on for a very very long time. That's kind of surprising though because I I mean if if your uni was anything like my uni people weren't interested in you too. And in fact they were actually you know antithetical to you too. No no enjoyment or street cred we'd get from having a conversation that began do you know who my favourite band is you two you just get blank stares and yeah, aggressive like, oh recently I was in a barber's and it was before I went to New York and I said I was going to New York to watch you two and he had no idea who they were that's insane this really and it really annoyed me and I tried to you know reel off some songs and, and, I, and I said you know the ones that do Beautiful Day he had no idea Vertigo no idea uh, with or without you, I was clutching at straws at this point. Mm. He had no idea. And then and he said, Shadows and Tall Trees. And he's like, oh, you too. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. No, I even said, Bono, you know, the guy who always always wears sunglasses, does a lot of charity work, people generally hate him. Not, and I got nothing. He had never heard of you too. I mean this in the nicest possible sense, but is he like a British national? Yes, yeah. That's, that's crazy. Because, I mean, if you were from like, you know, somewhere very, very off the map, you know, and then you'd emigrated over i could get that but that's like not knowing who like queen or the beatles are or 
Stones, really. Is it though, or is that just? Are we just so close to this band now that mm. that's what we we think? I, I think, regardless of whether you like them or not, they are so famous, and I'd like Bono's to in the news that. so much for right and wrong reasons. You know, I, I just think it's impossible, and it's such an easy kind of band to remember. You know, you two, it's just two letters, really. Yeah. Anyway, Killing Bono. That kind of brings us on to one of the first things I want to discuss with you. Uh, the, the title, Killing Bono. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the film is based on a book by Neil McCormack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the book was called I Was Bono's Doppelganger. Yes. Obviously, the book is source material. Yeah. And apparently it's a, it's a very good book. I haven't read the book, and I don't think you have either. Yeah, I've, I've got in my notes right from the outset, we haven't read the book, so no. we apologise. I think if you continue with the podcast from this point onwards, you need to kind of just let go it's, of the, it, the it, fact we've a, not read it. This is a quote-unquote review of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of our stuff's just been a quote-unquote review. It's more about our Yeah, but personal... this is the film, this isn't the book. Um, yeah. And it's the story told in the film. And I would also say, we don't know enough about the band's early life in detail, as some people do, to be able to say, that's fact, that's fiction. You know, it's very, very difficult to do that. And um, just to interrupt for a sec, on that note, I've got a quote from Neil here. Uh, he's not sent it to us personally, it's just from an article he wrote. So I think this is an interesting thing to have in mind, because... If you look, if you're coming to this podcast looking for us to say, well, that didn't happen exactly like that, or, well, that's been embellished, we, there might be a bit of that, but I don't think we can say with any certainty. And Neil's own words on this are, are quite good. So, um, so Neil says, film is a very different medium to the written word. Internal voices become dialogue, metaphor becomes action, and with each rewrite, it became a little more detached from my life as I remembered it. Characters were compressed, new characters invented, incidents exaggerated. The story started to take a logic of its own. By the 14th draft, 14 drafts, I mean, that we'll come back to that and what, what the film is like. Anyway, by the 14th draft, they had me running around Dublin with a gun, hunting down my old friend. Okay, so um, so I think we can say this film is, it takes a lot of um, poetic license and 14 rewrites, that is a problem, which we'll return really? to. Yes, because you can tell it's been rewritten 14 times. But I, I don't know, I think... I think that's a relatively small amount of rewrites. If it, I'm sure some of the bigger films have, have more rewrites. It depends whether you mean a complete rewrite or just editing and tweaks. But we can get back to that as we go through the review. So well, what just did you want to say? That, I would say that more writers is more of a detriment than more drafts. Cooks and broth. Yeah. Well, the writers were uh, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenate, which uh, people will remember fondly from... Porridge. Porridge, really. Yeah, and lots of uh, old sitcoms. So the, the, a somewhat aged team to be writing a film about very, very youthful, you know, rebellion. They were, you know, they're, they're very I, seasoned writers, let's put it that way. I would say that was uh, uh, Porridge um, and comedies around that time, mm. that was kind of a golden age of, of TV comedy, particularly here in the UK. Yeah, there was very little choice, though, as well. So I mean, you you kind of had to watch what was on. Porridge was good, you know. I've yeah. no, you know, no hello, hello. hello, hello. Is that is that the uh, the French version <laughs> of review too? <laughs> that was very quick for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, there were other people writing. Uh, Simon Maxwell, Ben Bond provided additional material, but I think it was Clement and Lafrenet who who did this like the core writing. Um, obviously, then the they're being inspired by McCormick's 
original memoir, which I guess itself is not a quote-unquote true representation because whenever you tell any anecdote in life, that story isn't what actually happened. There's obviously edits that you make yourself. You always exaggerate and move things around a little bit. The book is very highly regarded as something that doesn't pull any punches, is very true to life. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil is a very gifted writer. I think everybody agrees with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's... I don't... I don't I, Having not read the book, I don't want to focus too much on that. No, that's fair enough. Um, but I think it served for a good enough blueprint. What I did want to talk about was the title. Yep. Uh, Killing Bono uh, or I Was Bono's Doppelganger, which do you think is the better title? From a marketing perspective, I think Killing Bono is a, is a better title because it has more impact. And um, how to phrase this without being insulting to Americans? Um well, right. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone had to be retitled The Sorcerer's Stone in America because there was fears that people... Maybe it's about the perception, not the actual, the reality of Americans. There's nothing to suggest that Americans are stupid at all. But they had to retitle it because they were worried that people wouldn't know what a philosopher was. So in the same way, I think you see, if you say doppelganger, it's a, it's a foreign word okay, um, to Americans, and they might not know what a doppelganger is basically. So I think Killing Bono just gets there a lot quicker and faster. It has a lot of impact. And Bono isn't dead. He's not been assassinated. So it, it's, it has that, oh, what's that about? And as soon, I mean, as soon as you've got someone to pick up a book, that's half the battle. What do you think? I think Killing Bono is a better title. Um, but then it got, uh, just today before you arrived, I was thinking, like, I, I don't know Latin. I, I never studied Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, but how many how many different meanings Bono can have. So can, could it be, a, 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 you know, could the, could the title have two meanings? Yes, the idea of killing Bono, the lead singer of U2, or mm-hmm. killing Bono, i.e. killing his own greatness, or killing the greatness he perceives that he wants. Killing good. Well, I, I, th- I always think of it as great yeah. rather than good. Um, Killing greatness. So what, what, what... So he- he's killing the, this, this, this idea, uh, Neil McCormack has to kill the idea of the perceived greatness he wants mm-hmm. to get to reach his true potential, which I think is generally the story in the film. It's about accepting that he can't, he's not going to get the kind of greatness that he imagines he wants, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. So um, uh, I think uh, you're uh, probably uh, reading too much into it. No, I don't have a problem with that. I think you're just one of the, uh, I think that's a rare understanding of that particular title or reading of it but I, I think it's fine makes sense and well explained um when we inquired as to our uh twitter versus interest or you know feelings on the film uh josh the tree said never watched it because i don't like the title winky face so, so a lot of people actually said you know reasonable film terrible title as, as a marketing exercise i think it's a good title it gets people's attention straight away um, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who don't like you two, I think, would be in favour of it. Thinking, you know, I think it appeals to both camps, people who really like the band and also people who just want to see, you know, Bono kind of slated a little bit. Yeah, I think killing Bono could have brought more people in, but it also could have kept... And I think it did keep a lot of people away. I, I know when I first heard about it, I was expecting a very gritty, um, biopic-style, mm. true-to-life, kind of uh, very serious. That's what I wanted. But what you get is kind of a very cartoonish, 
very bright, uh, very ambient. Silly. Film. Yeah, silly, uh, silly com- uh, comedy film. And I think because of that, I like it a lot more. I, I think it, it doesn't know what it wants to be, really. I think it's confused. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that funny? I, I, I don't know. I just... Maybe, maybe you're right. I, I enjoyed the film, though. Yeah, I mean... There's, if, there's a lot of joy in it, so... Well, that's very true to the kind of the, the nature of, of U2, isn't it? There is there is a lot of joy and exuberance in it. There's a naivety in it as well, similar Certainly to is. that of Sing Street, which if any of you haven't seen Sing Street, I would recommend definitely go and, go and watch that. That was another away. issue with this film. I kept comparing it to Sing Street, and that's a, that's a bad comparison. It's almost like the kind of, you know... Shook up but compared this, this to U two. This came out before before Sing Street. Fair enough, but it's... you know, U two was supposed to write the music for Sing Street. I, I did not know that. In a very early, they were they were going to write the music, but I, they I'm ran glad, into. I'm glad they didn't then. Yeah, they ran into similar uh, problems, like with Spider Man, <laughs> where U two just didn't have the the time to to do it. Yeah. Or just couldn't be bothered doing it, basically. Yeah. Commit to a project, then don't put any time into it. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad they, they stayed away from Sing Street. Oh, me too. It's a much stronger film. Um, okay, so the premise of the film. So anyone who um, is in that kind of strange position of listening to this podcast, um, but actually hasn't seen the film. Well, first of all, just go and watch the film. Pause this. Me and Tyler will wait. Off you go. Go and watch the film if you've not watched it. Right, good. Okay, so this is about... Neil McCormick and his brother Ivan and I think the best person to just sum up the overall concept of the film is uh, Neil McCormick again so. I thought you were going to say it's you Tyler, off you go <laughs> um, and he's here today Neil McCormick <laughs> no, right. so this is a quote from him as a young man I was obsessed with fame I was convinced it was my destiny to become a world beating rock star I had it all mapped out, the concept albums the sci-fi world tours first band on the moon, turned out my schoolmate Paul Hewson had the same idea. He started a band called Feedback, which briefly featured my younger brother Ivan on guitar. That didn't work out, and I grabbed Ivan for my own punk band, Frankie Corpse and The Undertakers. We played our first gig at the Mount Temple School Disco in Dublin in 1977 with Paul's band, who had changed their name to The Hype, and obviously later became U2. So that's basically the the summing up of it. That's the, the crux of the film. It's about... And the film kind of does change this a little bit from from what seemed to have actually happened. Basically, the reality, and Ivan said this, he said, after a couple of months in the band, which was called The Feedback at that point, Adam Clayton phoned uh, to say that he had a gig in a pub, but because Ivan was so young, he would have to leave the band. And Ivan basically was really sad about this and cried his eyes out. And when when he basically realised that you two were also too young to be playing (laughs) in pubs. Um, So in the film... And the kind of the, it hinges on this. Ivan is essentially not told by his brother Neil that he could have been in U two, and he keeps that a secret. Whereas in reality, they just he just let him go after a while. So they've heightened that. That's exaggerated, but that's the conceit of the film. Yeah, um, and I'm I really don't like that it was Adam that made that call. Well, who else? <sighs> I mean, they must have drawn straws for that. Surely. I think it's just because Adam's got the probably got the best phone manner. And he's probably it's probably easiest to hear it from him because he's got that lovely kind of like clipped English tone. I don't know. I may have to actually apologise for Adam in this episode. <laughs> well, no, because it was the right decision. I mean, if Ivan had been in the band, you wouldn't have got that kind of... Edge's sound comes a lot from the fact 
particularly early on, his sound comes on for the fact that he's, he's filling out all that space that would usually be muddied up by another rhythm guitar that would be kind of pointlessly added. And a lot of invention comes out of having just one guitar. I mean, look at, um, say, someone like Rage Against the Machine, for example. It, it breeds a lot of ingenuity because you've got so much space. You've not just got, you know, three guitarists all playing the same thing pointlessly. Iron Maiden. Right. No, <laughs> definitely, definitely not. I, Iron Maiden... Okay, on most songs they don't need three guitarists, but when you see them on a, in a live setting, yep. they really each each of them is doing something maybe slightly different, but different nonetheless. And having just seen them, as you know, and hence why Johnny's <laughs> deciding to, to uh, take the mick out of me for going watching Iron Maiden, um, when you see them live, it's just such a sonic attack. Mm, I agree with that, and it's. It's really, really, it's really quite impressive. I wish, um, well, one, I wish you two had the amount of energy that Iron Maiden have, and Iron Maiden are all a lot older than than you two. Yeah, that's true. Um, but when it just such a wall of sound comes at you, similar to like an Arcade Fire kind of kind of gig, but there's 104 of them. There's only <laughs> six of Iron Maiden. True. Um, okay, so I, I knowingly got you off to off off topic there. Yeah. Um, okay, so. We've not done a movie review before. No, we haven't. I guess we should start with a couple of details just to just to try and be a bit professional. So the film was directed by Nick Ham. Uh, as we said before, screenplay, major writing was done by Clement and Lafrenet. Uh, original story, Neil McCormick. Uh, starring, centrally, uh, Ben Barnes as Neil, Robert Sheehan as Ivan, uh, Kristen Ritter as Gloria, and uh, Martin McCann as Bono. Yep, uh, Peter Serafinovich in there as um, Hammond. Hammond, yeah. The exec that they signed with for the record label. Um, spoiler, I suppose, <laughs> for that one. But I always enjoy seeing um, Peter Serafinovich in anything. Yeah, and if you've not already, then check out some of his stuff on YouTube um, from the Peter Serafinovich show because it's, it's just really funny. Particularly uh, the internet ham one's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> These, I think there's something like 60 impressions in a minute or something like that. That's also great, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so Sarah Finowich is, is definitely a, a major highlight in this film, I think. Um, is he actually, other than Pete Postlethwaite, is he the only person that you knew from this film? No. When the, you watched it first? The very first time, I wasn't aware of Ben Barnes. No. Um, I, I mean, I haven't seen Ben Barnes or Robert Sheenan in anything else. But uh, Ben Barnes is in one of the the Narnia things, isn't he? Yeah, I think he's Prince Caspian, and he was also in um, the somewhat sketchy uh, Dorian Gray film, which was fine. Oh, was he? Was he? Yeah. In that? Oh, was he? Was he Dorian? Yes. Yes. So I have seen that then. You didn't recognise him. That's... I don't. I don't want to say it was an, an, a forgettable performance, but I think it's a testament to his acting that you didn't recognise him. I think he does a good yeah, job that's a good here point, in in kind of. I mean, he is, he's a very attractive man. He's a good job. He does a good job at making himself quite goofball-y, um, I think, all the way through. And Ivan... Ro- uh, Robert Sheehan, is it? How do you mean? He was in... Uh, yeah, Robert Sheehan, yeah. He was in uh, Misfits, which is where most people would, would know him from, uh, from Channel 4. We should get on with the film. I think what we're going to do is we're going to go through the film, the, the major events of it, and just share down... Share our notes that we've we've copied down as we've uh, as we've been watching it. Yeah, probably go off on tangents. I plan to keep this one under an hour and a half. Yeah, but knowing us, 
might go on longer. Yeah, I think it's it's worth saying at this point as well that me and Johnny are also a bit uh, trepidatious about this this review because it's not really you two, and it's a film. And yep. uh, I'm although I have got a couple of friends who listen to the podcast and want us to talk about anything other than you two, <laughs> which is strange. And uh, well, may- fair maybe this will cut the mustard. I'm not, I'm not sure. So join us as we take you back all the way to 2011 and we review Killing Bono so the film kicks off during the band's 1987 Dublin homecoming for the release of the Joshua Tree and then flashes back to 10 years earlier to show how jealousy and missed opportunities and brotherly love all prevent Neil and Ivan from making it big as buddies Bono, Edge, Adam and Larry all go off and hit um, you know, hit the big time. They seem to go from success to success. Mm-hmm. Uh, intermittently throughout the films, you get shots of posters or records of when you two are releasing different albums. Mm. Um, which is it's kind it's kind of a that just shows you how fast time is moving in this film. Yeah, they're useful. They're useful kind of landmarks and yeah. um, milestones along the way as these two parallel stories progress, and you can see where they're getting on with because obviously the um, the band don't really visibly age that much. I mean, uh, Neil gets a bit of stubble and a beard at one point, but really there's there's not a huge amount to tell that they're growing up and things are changing massively. I mean, they dress atrociously all the way through the film. So uh, You two or Ivan and Neil? Just Well, mainly Ivan and Neil, although uh, there's some dodgy moments, I suppose, for, for Bono as well. Um, yeah, so, so where do you want to start? Um, well, they're actually like... There are three scenes that I, I think... Um, are really interesting for you two fans. Uh, mm-hmm. The first of which is when um, Bono and this is when Bono is asking Neil if Ivan can be in the band, and they're they're on the the docks at Dublin and they're buying fish and chips. Mm-hmm. And there's a conversation between Bono and and Neil, and Bono says to Neil, uh, "I can see your face on the posters," and Neil replies, "Yeah." you too and then Bono's facial ex- expression changes yeah. and I, I really I really like that what I really enjoyed about this film it, it, when you know the story as well as we do or, or at least as well as I, I feel I do I don't it, feel I'm very confident on it but go on well as, as, well because uh, the story is that it was Paul, uh, Paul McGuinness that decided that asked them to change the name to you two and that's where the you two name came from um, but in in the film, it's all, it's like little digs here and there to make make them. I thought it was the guy from the Radiators who told them to change the name to to U two. Or was that the hype? I I thought it I thought it was McGuinness that um, that went with with U two. I guess unless uh, there's probably going to be loads of stories out there. Mm. Um, but it's pretty fa- famously uh, it was when Dick Evans left the band also not in this film, Dick Evans the Edge's brother, yeah. when he left the band they stopped being the hype and then became U2, but it was a suggestion from Paul McGuinness, that is what I read in one of those you know, big U2 magazines. I think I'm getting different things confused, but I remember uh, Adam was told by um, the lead singer of The Radiators that they needed to change the band name to something better, um, and that might have been that might have been from, you know, the the whole hype the feedback, feedback thing. To the yeah, hype, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway. Um. So you enjoyed that moment in the film. That I, whole. Yeah, just because it's like, oh, uh, uh, 
Bono just hearing you two and because mm. uh, for, for me that's funny and throughout this film I felt like um, I, although when I first, when I saw the film even last week I I thought that Ivan and Neil had more of an input into the film than just uh, Neil writing a book several years before and then it be, it'd been turned into a film but they they had actually very little to do with it but I felt like it was just you know poking fun. Uh, there was a few a few points throughout the movie where I felt like they were just like you know nudging the mates because mm. they they were high school high school friends and they're still friends now and it's kind of it's what we do if one of us was famous and had a, a a film worthy story to tell yeah and you were making it you would put little digs in there and I'd put little digs in there that that would annoy you and I can just imagine Bono sitting there watching that little scene and squirming yeah although I will say and maybe this is a time to have the discussion. <laughs> Uh, I think he he does he does come out of it very well overall. I think it, the film doesn't really go far enough with the kind of you know with, with the other side of you know the, the the man. He seems very almost Christ-like and angelic all the way through this film. The guy who, who plays him, uh, Martin McCann, nails the voice. He gets that done really well. And there's a moment that I think he really gets the character of Bono right from the start. We've got the famous scene with the you know the chipboard right at the start, where, they're, where yes, they're, yeah. they're saying, oh, Larry's putting a band together, that kind of thing. And the way that he has put his um, name down and then without turning away from the poster, he just his arm goes across and passes a pen onto Ivan. It's it's a He's got Bono's movement and that kind of like rock star way of not turning around, looking someone in the face and be like, do, do you want the pen now to put it on the... To put your, your name, mine's on there too. Put, there's the pen, oh, we've dropped it. You know, it's not like he just turns around and without looking just beatically passes in the pen you know i don't think there's that i think yeah i think bono does come across really well and i think that is something that will really annoy a lot of people yeah but it, I, it did annoy a lot of critics that i read reviewing it but i think that what they do is they do in a very friendly way they poke fun at certain mannerisms and certain things that bono may or may not have done mm. uh having listened to a few interviews with neil and ivan they said that bono always had girls following him in school he was the cool kid with with a, a a pin. I think he had a safety pin through his cheek, and you know, just he was doing all the punky kind of stuff. Yeah. Basically, imagine the Bono we all know and love now, but in in a, in, in all put into a teenage boy yeah. doing anything for attention. Yeah. Uh, he he was always surrounded by by girls, and he was the one that you know listened to the the different music and dressed differently and had his hair different. Mm. Um, but I do. I, there's a lot of things like that. You know, like that over exaggeration of the hand yeah. in the pen, the movement that I think that's just something that they would have thrown in there. Yeah. I can't imagine the real Bono actually doing that, but I think there's, there's part, parts in this where they make you two try and look a little bit more dorkish than perhaps they were. Uh, the next scene that I, that I really brought that home for me was uh, the bit on the back of the bus yeah, with the whole names thing. Yeah, where they where they they decide to give themselves the the, the nicknames of of Bono and the Edge. Um, I think it's fairly widely regarded that in Dublin, in the part of Dublin that they grew up, it was commonplace to give people nicknames. Well, everyone gives people nicknames, don't they? I mean, you yeah. Know. But I, I always thought that it, where they grew up. It was like a rite of passage. It might it might have been a little bit um, more common there, but I mean, my my dad had a friend called Hedge, Hedge. genuinely called Hedge, Tony Hedge, I think he was. Why though? I think because of his haircut. Because my my dad my dad's got a friend 
uh, who his nickname is Disco Dave, and I once asked why he's called Disco Dave, and I was told, well, have you ever seen anybody less likely to be in a disco? <laughs> and it's like, I it's, like that. it's those kind of <laughs> like those are the kinds of nicknames you get in Wigan. I think the Edge is a great nickname. It is, but it's but the thing is, a nickname to be cool has to come about organically. You can't go around telling people, by the way, this is my new nickname. I'm now called, I don't know, like something, just something cool. But like, in the film, that's what that's they, exactly what that's they do. What yeah. They make so they're trying to make them look uncool, mm. and I do think it is just that playful nudging of you know, I know that we know this isn't really how the story went, but we're gonna you know like just. Mm. Not humiliate, but make you feel a little bit uncomfortable watching this. But then the the whole point of that scene, I guess, is that um, Neil and Ivan take the mix so much and say, <laughs> "There's that moment where you think they're really it's really profound because it's meant to be this profound moment." And you know, the music kind of stops a little bit, and he's like, "Oh, that's so." And then he says, "It's terrible. It's a rubbish name, basically." And and they laugh, they laugh and do the, I don't know, they do the te- the standard tedious jokes about the names, like, "Oh, you know." Yeah, everyone says the same. The, the, the schoolboys. I was waiting for the classic Larry come uh, comeback. I mean, Larry and Adam don't really have a lot of lines in this. This very few, yeah. This uh, film. If, I if don't any. think. I don't think Larry came across. I mean, we've not talked about it, but you know this the the famous Larry's mum's kitchen kind yeah. of scene, which comes just a bit before this. Um, I don't think that is a very particularly good Larry. It doesn't seem. He's like, okay, guys, come on, we've got to get on with the band now. <laughs> Just, I, I think that actor did not do a very good job. Yeah, on the on the bus scene when uh, Ivan and Neil and everybody else are, are laughing at the nicknames Bono and the Edge, I really wanted a, a Larry line of, if I had a name like yours, I'd bleed and bury it. You know, something like that. A name. A name or a head. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, I think they did that about as well as they could, but it's kind of, I don't know. It's 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 very, it's played for laughs in in a way that I I I would rather it have been much more. Maybe I want an actual documentary done well. That's what I actually want, and I'm being unfair to the film. But this isn't the story of you two, though. No, but that's what I want. That's the problem. Right. Okay. This isn't a documentary about the the early days of you two with you know really good you know kind of footage and interviews and things like that. And it's not Sing Street, which is a great fictionalizing of the idea of a band getting together when they're young and struggling to make it and everything Sol- like that. Sing Street solely through the eyes of a teenage boy. Exactly. It's, so it's 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 not really what I want, but I I did watch it and I enjoy parts of it. Um, the other bit I think we should talk about, which just comes before the bus scene, is the actual, the first gig where they quote-unquote sort of co-headline it, yeah. um, which they obviously <laughs> don't. Um, so The Undertaker's... Um, I thought they sounded pretty good, and I thought oh, this is a good song. And then I realised it's it's a cover song. It's uh, do anything you want to do. And if they'd written that song at that age, they would have become well yeah. a lot more likely. They would have become uh, famous. So that that sounds good, but it's a cover version, so it kind of it takes away the credibility. I remember when when um, my old band Three Screws Loose, for example, were in high school. I get a plug in now. <laughs> um, we won a talent show. Is that uh, three screws loose dot TK? That... <laughs> that I think the GeoCities site does not <laughs> exist anymore, and you wouldn't have got much out of it anyway. Um, so that they we played a gig at school and a talent show organised by another band called Six Foot Midget. Now Six Foot Midget organised this whole battle of the bands thing, but then they were they were a lot older than us, but then played all covers, and we played 
some covers, but a lot of our own stuff as well. And we won, which really annoyed Six Foot Midget at the time. I think they were aghast that, that you know, they organised this whole thing and Three Suits Loose ran in there and just stole it from them. So the point I'm trying to make is you, you get you get more credibility at that age, I think, if you actually do write your own stuff. This actually, I'm glad you've mentioned Three Screws Loose because this brings up, uh, this, by the way, is not a band that I had anything to do with, although I did. It was a good band. <laughs> I did once um, audition to be the, the, the lead uh, lyric writer. Um, that didn't go well. Um, but uh, I'm sure McCoey won't mind us talking about McCoey, will he? No, I think so. I think he's um, Hello, Tom, if you are. Uh, hi, Tom. Uh, but he did support Bon Jovi at the City Manchester Stadium. Yep. Uh, funnily enough, when I was going to watch Bon Jovi, um, was there when when that was happening? Was there any Ivan or Neil like feelings to like, man? I was in a band with this guy, and now yeah. he's 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 playing the city of Manchester Stadium, which just so happened to be the place we first saw mm. you to. So you're wondering if the younger me, around about sixteen, seventeen, had any kind of jealousy of a friend of mine. You'd been, I think you'd have been about nineteen. Okay, achieving his rock status and stardom in Manchester, supporting an incredibly huge band. Yes. No, not at all. Didn't think about it. <laughs> yeah, of course. It, of course, though, of course like, it bothers you. Like I mean, at that age, of course. You... We've never had this conversation either, and I never even thought about. It's what not it... something I'm bothered about nowadays. I mean, I, I, he did really, really well, and the band was very successful. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think it's always <sighs> bands are very emotional things because you don't just sit around and play music together. But when you've got four people in a room and you actually manage somehow to organise the time that you've all got free get everyone in the same room you've actually learned the same song even if it's something really simple like the Ramones just that feeling of all playing together it hits you on an emotional level you're you've made a something else something that didn't exist before I think this this film does actually do a good job of capturing that kind of quality reasonably well like that first that first um kitchen based you know kind of rehearsal that they do you get that sense of joy and everyone you know having a good time even though they can't really play that well yeah i think that's why i feel like i have an affinity with this this um this type of film mm. sing street uh, does it 10 times better though yeah because and i would agree with that but because i was in those bands because i tried to write songs and i feel like i've been in that mindset i recognize it and i sympathize with these characters mm. so much and i never achieved anywhere near the the success that even neil and ivan did but I wanted it just as much. You're saying just, wanted in the past tense. So you're you're not you've given up on the dream of becoming a rock star. Um, I I I I think I'm too old. Right? <laughs> to, uh, to start out, I think I'm too old. You're at the age that rock stars usually uh, end up dead. I'm at the age um, that you two brought out Joshua Tree. Yeah. Um, and I, and I just I, I just think you know it, it didn't. But yeah, I think I still I still want it, and I'll always want it. So I'm always gonna. But I remember when I was 16, and I really wanted it, and I thought yeah. it was possible. See, and that's where you and I differ because I have always been reliably pessimistic. I remember having a conversation with uh, McKewy, Tom, the person who ended up playing supporting Bon Jovi, and um, this is how I remember it. Anyway, we were talking about what the band was going to do. We'd played a couple of gigs, and we were starting to feel really good about ourselves, and and he was saying, oh, we, we, you know, we might do this at some point, you know, oh, there was some sort of entertaining that that might be possible. And I was saying, it's never going to happen. Nothing, nothing like that would ever happen to, for me and this band by extension. And to be fair, I was right. Yeah. I, I never thought it was possible and it never will be. 
you see, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'd always, I always want to, I always want to believe that kind of stuff, and, and, and I think that for this film in particular, they had a good time struggling through and not getting anywhere, and I'd rather have a mm. good time struggling through and not getting anywhere, yeah, than having a bad time getting somewhere. I, th- I think. Even just playing down the pub, you know, in any live music performance, is it's one of the best feelings you can have. It's it's amazing. So, it's about the expectation that's attached to that. So, I'd, I'd be very happy, you know, kind of knowing that I wasn't going to make it, but still playing reasonably okay gigs, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I've settled for shocking people on karaoke when when people <laughs> people don't know that I, you know, have sang in the past, and and they'll I, like if it happened a few weeks ago. Someone challenged me to a karaoke competition. And I went okay. And I just sat there quietly, knowing what was going to happen, arrogantly and arrogantly and, and smug, uh, and um, and yeah, I, I won. And but I, I can cope with that now. Sure, I'm not selling out Croke Park or Wembley, but I don't need that. <laughs> okay, eyes are gone. <laughs> um, all right, so back to the film. Um, the Undertakers play the cover of Eddie and the Hot Rods, and then you two play Street Mission, um, which is probably the best that song has sounded. I went back to the YouTube version of it, and it is spectacularly bad. It was completely re-recorded by the actors, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and it just sounds a lot better because recording technology has got better, and and you know they wouldn't have put a huge amount of money into recording Street Mission the original because no one knew this was going to become U two. Um, I really wanted them to do Party Girl, but you, I don't think you'd ever you wouldn't get that sort of you know the crowd reaction that they wanted. You need a song that's big you know i mean yeah. i don't think street mission is a very good song but it is big th- well the street mission does it does a um it works because it shows bono doing that david bowie yes impression that we we've, we've talked about at various points throughout the journey mm. um so it just shows you how even then you two would all all they had to go on was copy i mean at that gig i think it's that gig where they played uh, glad to see you go by the ramones as well which is a cracking song really good song um so they were they were also doing that thing of covers but they were they were starting to take their own steps into writing their own material which is i mean if you want to be a three screws loose and not a six foot midget you've got to take those steps (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so we've done the gig we've done the bus journey with the names um and then we get an insight into what neil actually does to support his you know his day job basically him being a journalist um, and him being asked if he wants a Bono At badge. At Hot Press, no less. At Hot Press, yeah, exactly. And it was good to see the Hot Press office. Yeah, that was good. I I liked seeing that, and I liked... I just think... Was it easier just to get into... Media was a lot better in those days, I think. It seemed like it was easier to get... I know this is a film, but it seemed like it was easier to get a job as a rock journalist. I think it was easy to get a job. Yeah, that's true, definitely. Not, not, you know, there's... Uh, the, uh, the, Ireland and the UK had, it, had an industry. Probably, you know, it's probably the similar... A similar thing happening in America right now. There is there is nothing. There's no system to to get to where you want to go, and then people just end up going to university. Well, it's that thing of that sort of constant cycle of you need experience to get a job, you need a job to get experience, and it just goes round and round. But I think these days as well, everyone's a critic. I mean, look at us. We're doing our own little amateurish thing, and you know, it's easy to just put stuff online. Everyone's reviewing things. Everyone's blogging or doing some sort of Facebook report. But we're not or... doing this. For, we, we don't, I mean, we don't. We don't have any expectations past sitting in a room talking, you know, talking to your mate for an hour. No, exactly. Um, and by extension, our review two friends around the world. But I mean, um, what I'm saying is, I think it's nice to look back into a time when 
you could be a rock journalist and cover something and people would be you know hungry to read your review in print and that would be i mean i still remember buying q you know and, yeah. and being excited when it came out and being hungry for it whereas these days it's just saturated if you want to get a review of anything online there's a hundred people who've already done it you know yeah there's there's, there's only the world is too online if <laughs> if, if if anything I, I i like picking up a book or picking up a, a magazine i, I still mm. if I've, I've got a long journey on a train or a plane i'll always pick up a magazine i i enjoy reading you know that medium so um but you're advising be- our listeners to switch off and get a book. No, I'm advising our listen, the listeners to, um, you know, listen to our complete <laughs> back catalogue on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, or anywhere good podcasts are available. Mm, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with the complete catalogue. I'd just do, I'd start sort of Unforgettable Fire episode four or something like that. Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> so while at Hot Press, we see Neil coming up the stairs and. This oppression of Bono in particular and you two in general uh, is beginning to kind of Im- impress itself upon his, his world. He gets asked if he wants a Bono badge, which he rebuffs quite uh, <laughs> quite clearly. Um, and I think those are the kind of moments where the film does a good job of appealing to fans and people who don't really like the band but might be interested in watching the film. Obviously, as a producer, director, anyone who's involved at a high level with this film, they want to appeal to both markets. They So they want to say... This is a film that will um, cater for people who are sick of having what Neil experiences happen to them in a general way. You know, but Bono he, imprinting himself on their life. That's a funny moment in the film, whether you're a fan of Bono or not. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. They, do, they do a good job there. I think that's when it it works quite well, even if it is still kind of a bit more comedic than I, than I particularly want um, in the film overall. Um, so we end up with that, and we end up with the release of Boy around about that time in the film. So we see that um, that shot of the the album and its famous cover being cycled all the way through the streets of Dublin, um, all the way back to the Undertaker's rehearsal garage, I guess is what you probably call it. And just in- going back to Hot Press, though, yeah, go on. We also get um, the first instance of Neil being almost begged by the editor of a Hot Press to write an article. He wants Neil to write a, a specific article mm. because he's the best person for the job. And it's the first instance of Neil rejecting something that he's actually good at because it's not what he wants. Yeah. And that is one of the main storylines throughout, throughout this. Yeah, it's one of those recurring things that happens all the way through. He keeps making the wrong decisions. It's, yeah, it's self-sabotage. Yeah. Plot. And it's all because he's got that kind of that pride that he doesn't want to do anything that's a reflection or you know kind of on the coattails of you two basically, um, which I can sympathise with to an extent, but it's a bit like you know how Walt refuses to get his surgery paid for and his cancer treatment paid for by his rich friends. That's not a spoiler. I, I don't know what you're on about. Oh right, okay, it's in Breaking Bad. Never seen it. Sorry. All right, so the majority of our listeners will know what I'm on about. But basically, he refuses to take money. You can relate to this. He refuses to take money for some incredibly expensive um, cancer treatment because he's in the US and they don't have the NHS. And he basically says no because he's got too much pride. And I get that some people's pride might stop them from doing things like that, from taking money. But for me, it's a no-brainer. Take the money. And for Neil, take the job and take the gigs all the time he makes wrong decision after wrong decision 
and it, it is irritating to watch that happen. I know that's it's a, an impleasurable irritation that films do. I mean, films would be terrible if there was no conflict, but it, it it just makes such stupid decisions as we keep going on. And as someone who would try and be more pragmatic in that situation, I really can't empathise with him as a character. Well, he is the antagonist and the and the, the protagonist throughout this entire film. He plays mm. both roles. Um, I was going to say, speaking of antagonists, we may as well move to the uh, to the gangster figure, Danny Macken. Danny Macken. I've got to say, it's, it's nice to see Bill Bailey in a starring role for once. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly thought it was. Bill I really Bailey. would have enjoyed it if it was Bill Bailey. But who does play Danny in this? Um, I think it's a guy called Stanley. Oh, you've you've asked the question now. I think it might be someone called Stanley Townsend. For some reason, that's in the back of my head. Stanley Townsend is Danny. Yeah, like, and he does a really good job. He is an imposing figure. Yes. Uh, um. In in this in this cartoonish world that is being created within Killing Bono, mm. I love the scene where the he gets them to play the strip club. Well, that comes directly and it's after. Terrible. That. Yeah, because they they've seen the they've seen the boy album covers come out and. Now Neil wants to get them a, a big gig, basically, yeah. and he ends up yes in this in this sort of very very seedy uh, illegal strip club, um, dressed like Kraftwerk, dancing like Mick Jagger, um, <laughs> yeah, and and very very funny facials from Ivan, yes, not, like not knowing where to look because he's. I assume underage or maybe he's nine, eighteen. Though. I think so, but also you've got to remember um, pre-internet. And in Ireland at that particular time, I imagine he hadn't been in that sort of environment before, yeah. and would be would be aghast as he as he was at that situation. Um, does just going back to the costume? Does Neil also have white gloves on at this point as well in the yes. film? Yes, yes, he does. So it really is a kind of it's a hodgepodge of of lots of different things. But he's got the confidence as well, which is quite good, and that's how he gets the money from Danny Mackin. And he's a he basically fronts up and says we're going to be the best thing. We're going to be like you two, but even more successful, that, that kind of thing. And they, he makes the other bad decision of getting in, in the red with the mob, basically, you know, in, in debt to the mob. And this is again, something that just keeps recurring throughout the film in making that, that sort of terrible decision. And that spurs them on really. Um, what did, what did you think? You think he was, did a pretty good job then Danny Mackham? Yeah. Yeah, I I, enjoy, I enjoyed the character. Uh, he was not overly intimidating, but you you understand why these young kids would be, mm. you know, a impressed and b scared scared, scared yeah. of, of him. Because there's that ambiguity throughout most of the film that he he might have killed someone, or he might not have killed someone as well, which which is a theoretical yeah. possibility. Um, one interesting thing that I saw, um, I'm not sure if I like this or not, but they um, in Danny Mackin's room, do you notice the um, the book that was on his desk? No. The camera lingers on it just for like a split second long Longer enough than, for, you to, yeah. Yeah, for you to see it. And he's got James Joyce's portrait of the artist on, on, his, on his desk at that point. Right. Which I, I can't tell really whether I like that because there are some thematic links between, you know, this idea of a kind of drifting artist struggling for his voice and identity and uh, the expectations that certain people have of him and it has some parallels that this story killing Bono to Portrait of the Artist but also I think it is just that kind of it might just be trying to make that link say oh look we've read Joyce you know this film is written by people who have a high literary status you know we've we read and like Joyce well Danny Mackin in the film is 
uh, he he's somebody who he's infamous, but he's more famous than 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 Neil. Hmm. He's another person that Neil's looking up to, and and even if he only gets to where Danny Mackin is, it's still better than where it, where he is now. He's just hmm. he's constantly looking up to everybody. You've got Bono who is doing it, the he's he's where he wants to be ideally. Hmm. Uh, you have Ivan who's more talented than him, and could have been in U two, hmm. and you have Danny Danny Mackin who everybody in Ireland knows and is afraid of. And on that note. Do we know if he's a real character? I tried to find him because I, I thought, I thought he might be a, a an actual real real person or or based on someone, but I couldn't find any record of him on. on the, it seems like he's a fictional character. I deliberately didn't look into this because there's a lot there's a, there's a lot of exaggerations in this film, and I don't want to know exactly you know what is and what isn't true. Mm. I think sometimes it's better not knowing. I think you're just afraid of Danny Macken coming and getting you. Has he said something? So they then make another big mistake. They book the gig that they're doing, this huge gig that they're putting a lot of money into and a lot of time into on the day that the Pope is visiting as well. So obviously in Ireland at that time, I don't know how those characters could have underestimated the appeal and the pull of the Pope. I guess it's just Neil being so... Neil wants the the reality to be that people would rather come and see him. Yeah. It's delusion than, rather than stupidity, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, fair enough. That that makes sense then. Um, and that was one of the gags that made the trailer, I think. The trailer gives the impression it's going to be a lot better film. I think <laughs> the, the trailer does something that... I, I enjoyed the film. I, I do enjoy the film. Look, overall, I'm glad it was made and I'm glad I watched it. But there are big flaws with it. And I think it's not held in massively high regard in the in No, the, I don't the think... It, even, no, no, I don't think it is. Um, yeah... A fun fact as well, which I will mention just because um, it's interesting. Um, Neil said it took six years from that first meeting um, that he had with the execs and with uh, the director uh, to the cameras rolling in Belfast, chosen because it looks more like Dublin in the 70s than Dublin does now. So it was actually shot in in Belfast, which is interesting. And I guess you you probably noticed that. I did see a lot of reviewers claiming that it looked quite cheap all the way through the film. And it didn't look... It was an indie film, wasn't it? And I prefer that. There's nothing. There's nothing I hate more at the minute in cinema than all these, like, superhero films just all over the place. They've already made the best superhero film. Go on, Watchmen. Oh, leave it there. It's done. I think you're going to get flooded with people disagreeing. Yeah. Well, they're wrong. <laughs> um, I, I have no problem with superhero films. Um, anyway, so they move. They make the decision to move to London. They are. Stepping out on their own. I think this is the point where they leave behind most of the other members of the band. It's just the core brothers going to London now. In reality, uh, they're in a band called yeah, uh, the Yeah Yeah. I think they were all the Yeah Yeahs. I'm not sure. Um, but they that's they they broke up, and this would have happened later on. That happened in real life in about 1985. That's when they moved to to London, and in the film. Formed, shook up, and I'm, and I think shook up was actually a real band. Yeah, definitely. But this is can, where the lines are getting blurred a little bit. You can watch them on YouTube, and um, you can see, you can see, you can see basically where the film has taken its cues from. With that, um, they're not terrible, but they're no U two, obviously. The the shook up in the film is a lot better than shook up in real life. <laughs> well, again, you get better production, I suppose. Um, yeah, and the 
they get to focus on particular particular songs as well. Um, this was the last performance of Pete Postlethwaite. Yes, it was. Um, I can't help but think he, he he could have ended in a in a better way. I mean, he's such a, a really really solid actor and very talented, and he kind of finishes in this um, this it's... role as quite a stereotypical gay figure, um, which is it's it's not, it's not offensive, I would say, but it's not good either. I mean, the, his job in that is to make cheap gay jokes, basically, isn't it? And sort of pat the boys on the bum and and kind of. And be a little bit creepy and predatory, but in a, in a sort of nice, safe kind of way. And it's I don't know. I don't know. It's played off in a humorous way. Um, yes, like as as innocent as it would have been at the time. It's it's not as risque as as Carry On, and Carry On would have been very big in the in the seventies and the eighties. <laughs> it's it, it's it's okay. It is what it is. Um, the, what I really did like uh, was his last little speech in the film. Where he tells them to go off and have fun and have no regrets and have lots of sex. Yes, and and that knowing that that was his last film role. Yeah, um, I just I just felt like that was a, a nice little soliloquy uh, to to go forward and and the, and the right message to give to Ivan and Neil, mm. who clearly didn't listen to to uh, to Pete's little bit there. Mm. What was what is it? Carl. 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 Do you know any of these uh, characters? I, do you know? I have to watch a film about seven to nineteen times to watch uh, to to get the 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 names. Lord of the Rings was hard for me. I had to watch the first season of Game of Thrones three times before I knew who everybody was. Hmm. I suppose that's going at quite a fast pace. Though. I mean, there's not that many characters in this film. No, there's not. Um, but speaking of which, I do think. Hmm. I'm, is it this film does get quite big cast members in? Maybe it's just because they're big in retrospect. I mean, Ben Barnes wasn't enormous at that time, and Kristen Ritter, who plays Gloria, who is introduced to the band by Carl, uh, she's obviously gone on to massive fame with Breaking Bad and her own series Jessica Jones, um, which is she's Je- Jessica Jones. Yeah, <laughs> but you're really bad at recognizing I, people. I, I really am. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. That. Wow. Okay. Yeah. She's actually the title character. Yes. Same I, I same see, face and everything. I, I did. I did see the first season of that, but I didn't recognise her. First season's very good. I I couldn't bother with the second. Um, Liked it until David Tennant turned up. Oh, I thought it was it was one of the best bits. No, a bit bit cheesy, really. All right. We've got to. We're coming into almost an hour now. We've got to try and yeah, keep okay, on track. Right. So they've um, moved. They've moved to London. They've moved to London. Yeah. Yes. Um. And this is around about the time that war comes out. And there's a good cut to that when um, when you get the line, this means war, and then you, you see the album cover. And I thought it's interesting because they've shown Boy and the success that have had, and then they show War, conveniently skipping October, basically, because it wasn't much of a success, was it? Yeah, they, I, I noticed that they skipped that as well, but... What what are you going to do? Really, you have to you have to cut some. You got a story of ten years to tell here. Yes, I agree. And we need and you know they they needed to cut some bits. And out. it wouldn't have made it wouldn't have made sense with this story that they have this, you know, meteoric rise that dip. Yeah, wouldn't have made sense in this film. So I get no. that. It's just it's funny if you're a U two fan because you notice October is conspicuous by its absence. Yeah, the bit where Gloria becomes the love in becomes the love interest during during the film, and you know they they go to the bedroom to have bedroom activities mm-hmm. um and there's a poster of bono yeah i forgot about that but above, yeah. above uh, on on the ceiling um I, I i just find that really funny that's a that's a very funny little joke 
Uh, and then um, where he, when I when Neil says sorry, that's with Gloria though. That's just with a a, a, a random fan that. No, I think it is with Gloria, isn't it? No. Hmm. That happens a bit later on. It's okay. just with, a, it's well, just the with bit, a random fan. The bit I'm on about no, anyway, is, is with Gloria, and he goes, "Well, there's actually a song called Gloria." Yeah. But I didn't write it, and Gloria says, "Oh, who did? <laughs> you too." Mm. I, I just as soon as like she turned up and her name was Gloria, you knew that joke was coming. But I, yes. I enjoyed it nonetheless. Although um, I assumed that she was called that because of that to make that joke. A bit like um, Christmas uh, Jones or whatever her name is in uh, in uh, the world is not enough. So yeah. Bond can make the joke. I'm not going to do yeah, it. Yeah, we know it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but no, she was she was called Gloria. Yeah, she's yeah. Still, they're, uh, they're still married. Well, there you go. Um, so if I you're don't... listening, guys, I hope you're enjoying marriage. Yeah, um, I'm sure they are. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So um, so we do get. <laughs> We do get around this time. Um, I was being genuine as well, wasn't I? Was yeah, yeah. Just, I'm sure they care as well. If if you are actually listening, Neil, then then do do send us an email and be nice. And we're sorry about all this. Yeah. Um, we get around about this time that we get some um, success with gigs. So we get some big gigs that the that the band are doing, and um, we get. There is a cameo of Ivan and Neil sat at the bar. Yes, there are. Gigs. Yeah, um, I think the build is Sleazy Guy One and Sleazy Guy Two in the in the credits, <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, and uh, we get the introduction around about this time of Hammond, the uh, record exec, without a clue, and he likes the band at first, but then it quickly becomes apparent that he is crazy, um, and they they. It seems like they've got this record deal, but then it's cruelly taken away by them by someone who actually knows what what they're doing, basically. Um, and I really liked Hammond's line at the gig where he just goes, "Don't boo me, I went to Eton." <laughs> I really like that line. That's one of the funniest bits of the whole uh, the whole thing. Again, that makes the trailer, and it's like they put all the best bits in the trailer, and the rest of the film is a bit sparse, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so basically, at this point, the band is together. Uh, they've got Gloria in as the manager and girlfriend. Uh, they're signed with um, Hammond's record label. Mm-hmm. Is that, that way up to the yeah? I think we skipped ahead a little bit. There's a few events that have been conflated a little bit. Because I think the relationship with Gloria takes a little bit longer. But I don't think it particularly matters. No. This is the problem as well with the middle bit of the film. I I think there's it's difficult to actually remember what events occur when. Because it's just this sort of pattern of a, a gig and then a mistake. Like, for example, them booking the gig on the same day as Live Aid, for example. Yeah. Um, it's another howler from Neil. Um, there's a gig and then there's a setback and then there's a you know a bit of a movement and then another U2 album comes out and there's a, a, a U2 pun or quip, you know. And that, that makes a film just a little bit... In the midsection, it kind of gets a bit slow and a bit samey, to be honest. And... Whenever there are these gigs, when the the soundtrack actually kicks in, it, it doesn't really work for me. It beca- and the songs don't pop because they're not very good songs, and you don't know them. And it's not like in Sing Street where there, these are new songs that you can that most people won't have heard of, but they're sung so clearly that you can understand. Okay, well the reason why those lyrics are like that is because he's just started to fall in love with this girl, or because he's just discovered existentialist angst, you know, or he's got into a particular thing. You get that with Sing Street and the songs pop because of that. They help tell the story because the songs are just songs here and they're not very good songs. I think one of them's all right. 
One of them is all right. Um, what's that one called again? <laughs> Were we meant to be? That's the one that is in the trailer. That's the big, the big kind of yeah. catchy and in inverted commas song that that's in the trailer. That's an okay song, but it is it's very much a U two pastiche as well. And again, it's and not I as good as the real thing. Just for the film. Yeah, I think it was made for the film. Did you find reading criticism on this that you, you were just assaulted with pun after pun all the time? You know, like even better than the real thing? Question mark. And this film Enti- is so bad. In titles, yeah. Yeah. Um, like beautiful day for Hampshire man because Ivan <laughs> now lives in Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> That's got to be the lowest of the low. That. That's terrible. It's like so little effort put into that. Yeah. Um, and we also get the, the, the timing that actually does work, where the songs and the story actually interconnect, is not when it's about a shook up song, it's when it's about still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's the bit where you get the most um, interaction between the soundtrack and what's actually meant to be going on, these two parallel lives intertwining, because of um, Neil saying, oh, he's, he's up there, he's got everything he wants, and he says he's still not found what he's looking for, you know, that kind of thing. Um which is which is fine, it, but it's, it's kind of an old joke as well, isn't it? It is, but you have to view it. it this is in a world where that's present. Mm. It's not, and you know, you would have had that. Re- he, the, the character would have had that reaction. Yeah. So I, I, it's it's excusable if if you were making those jokes set in two thousand eighteen, then no, it doesn't work because everybody has said that before. Yeah, it's not still a, do. It's not a current song. It's funny for him to be reaching that level of success with a song like that. Yeah. And when there would have been people on the other side, like Ivan and like Neil. Mm. So yeah, I I don't mind it. I, I did find it funny. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So, so where are we up to in the film? This is the bit where it gets a bit hazy for me. I know that the, there's the live aid thing with the bucket on the wrong day. Yeah. His relationship with Gloria, um, becomes a bit more a bit more serious. Well let's get them signed. So so they do they do a big gig. Uh Danny Mackin turns up. Um Hammond is then umming and ahhing about whether to actually sign them. Uh very funny scene where Danny um <laughs> dressed as a reverend yeah. goes and talks to Hammond in, in a toilet. Yeah. Uh and I don't know what happens in the toilet. It's it's not explicitly said, but when Hammond comes out he signs the band. He shouts at him. You know, he, shout, he shouts at him, but you know whether he roughs him up or not, I'm not sure. Oh, I see. I think he just intimidates him a bit for, yeah. for that. But good performances from both the um, Sarah Finnewich, you know, going he's over tre- the top. He's a tremendous comic actor, Sarah Finnewich. I, yeah. I always think he's really underrated, and I think he should be, should be doing much bigger roles, like Simon Pegg kind of roles. Well, he was in Guardians of the Galaxy. He, well, he was in Star Wars The Phantom Menace. <laughs> as, as Darth Maul. Yeah. The voice of Yes, I know. Yeah. Um, less said about those films, the better. Um, yeah, so... Um, what else happens at this point in the film? Well, this is where they, they... This is the point where they leave the flat that they've they've been renting from Carl, and they all go off on the road, and everything seems to actually be going pretty well for the boys and the band. Oh, wait. There's one other thing. They get the offer... Is it at this point they get the offer to do the Rod Stewart contract? Yes. So there's there's that idea that and I think Rod Stewart's become something of a um, joke. Well, something of he was something of a punching bag. I think whenever anyone reminisces about the birth of punk and um, and then by extension new wave, and what things people were reacting to, like what what were the Sex Pistols reacting to, what were the Clash 
and you know the Ramones and all these other punk you know bands reacting to Rod Stewart always seems to be the person that they say you know that was you know music had become bloated and a bit daddish and uh, and also prog I guess also gets a kick in as well but Rod Stewart's kind of he's seen as the height of uncool at this particular time which is why Neil doesn't want to do the pragmatic thing, which I yeah, would have they, done. They offer him sell the song they to Rod. Off, they offer, offer him to sell the song to Rod or Manilow, don't they? Yeah. Um, I, I, Manilow has had a resurgence recently, I think, as well. I, 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 I would sell a song to them. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, we would both do this because it's a pragmatic thing to do. Sell the we're, sell the song. Reasonable people. Also, uh, when they have signed. Bono gives them a call and asks them, "Do they want to play the cro- a croak part?" And this gig. is Bono with his arm in a sling because he's fallen off stage. Yeah, although apparently that's not, um, it doesn't sync up with the history. But again, it's it it doesn't really matter the exact date. It's the fact that you're again seeing another key moment where you can see the progression, yeah. and you can see how far Bono has come from the original Bono as well. You know, he looks totally different now. Yeah, he's growing his hair. Yeah, and no, if he's got his Joshua Tree outfit on, you couldn't have worn that around. Uh, no, Temple, no, but you know it just shows how fast the, the the film is moving. Although it's probably the fa- the film probably moves faster than this podcast. <laughs> um, so so that's what's happening. They're going out on tour. They've been offered to do Croke Park. Once again, Neil has turned Bono down, uh, and they go off on tour, and things seem to be going really, really well mm. until Neil sleeps with Hammond's wife. Yes, um, and I've got a quote here from um, from Neil. Um, so apparently, when they were when they went to watch this film, um, after that, uh, Neil said that Gloria was being really horrible to me over dinner, and it eventually dawned on me that it was because my film character had cheated on her film character. Sorry, wait, my film character had cheated on her film character with another film character who never even existed. When I pointed this out, she said, "Well, it's just like something you would have done," <laughs> which I think is quite funny. <laughs> I think it's that idea of um, you often hear people talking about how. Apparently, I'm not sure this ever happens, but people talk, do talk about the girlfriends kind of turning to them, all the boyfriends saying, and they wake up from a dream and they are angry or they hit the their partner and say, "Well, you've just dream cheated on me with someone." It's like, come on. Yeah, I I know a couple that this happened to. Mad. Uh, I used to I used to work in a in, in a pub, and they always this man and wife always came in together. They're mm. always always very friendly. Always talked to them, and one night I noticed that they were you know they weren't talking to one another. So I, I I asked I asked the guy what's actually what's going on here, and she had had a dream that he had cheated on on her with somebody else, mm. uh, and had been in a mood with him all day because it had happened in her dream. So this is was it someone was the third party someone they both knew? Yeah. Okay, that kind of makes sense a little bit. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Her dream. Yeah, it does make any sense. Yeah. But I mean, for this, this is. A film character that it doesn't even exist, you know this yeah. uh, Hammond's wife, um, who apparently does this to all the uh... this kind of thing you would have done. <laughs> it's good life from Gloria. <laughs> um, who was the other person that Hammond mentioned? Because she apparently she's done this with other people. He mentioned someone famous. Was it Dire Straits or someone? Oh, he did mention. I can't remember now. This podcast is an exercise in frustration of us just not knowing details the, at all. But this is going to fill everybody with. An enthusiasm to go and watch Killing Bono, available now on Netflix. So uh, they're going to run away, they're going to watch it, and they're going to get all this stuff. We don't want to ruin every little joke for them, do we? No, I suppose not. Um, So again, another catastrophic decision from Neil. 
it doesn't seem like he's I don't think it is something Neil would have done I think it's very out of character this I think he's he seems like a very earnest person he doesn't seem <laughs> yeah, to even he, though he wants to be a rock star he doesn't seem to like the excess of being a rock star I mean they, they, they he do gets a bit talked of drugs, into but, it very quickly yeah that was I was pretty critical of that and he seems quite adamant and then very quickly just sort of changes his mind but well fair enough I suppose um, mm. and so this all comes out in the wash yeah. later on um, presumably that's another point where they've had a lot of success isn't it it's just before another big gig isn't it and yeah. Shuck Up are getting a bit of traction yeah this leads to the conclusion of the film which I think we probably shouldn't really go into in case people do want to go and watch the film. I don't know we should just talk about it really I think if if you're listening to this and you've not seen the film oh, like, spoiler alert if you don't want if you want to watch the film we'll watch the film now we can talk about it okay right um, so so it comes out the uh, through hot press that it's Bond... from that other reporter the one who set up a sort of mini antagonist yeah. early on he doesn't get on with Neil but he's cut his hair by this point yeah he is um, he reveals that Bono asked Neil if Ivan could be in the band and this is the first Ivan hears about this. Yeah. Uh, it's 10 years on. Yeah. Uh, and I think Ivan reacts the way anybody, any of us would have reacted. Mm. If I'd have denied you joining, say, the Killers 10 years ago, <laughs> I'm sure you'd be annoyed at me by now. Um, Not really. I don't want to be in the Killers. Well, there's not that many people left in the Killers, so someone's got to be in there. Really? Who's left? Not Ronnie. Uh, no, it's but basically it's just Brandon and Ronnie Venucci Jr. who tour. They get together to record albums, right. but uh, the the guitarist Mark Stormer and yeah. the bassist whose name escapes me. Well, the reason why I, I, they I, don't tour anymore, they they just stay at home. Like, obviously, I'd love the money and success and fandom of 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 being in the Killers, and they are a good band. It's just that I don't think it seems like a particularly fun band to be in. Really, that bassist looks so bored all the time. It's because he's at home. <laughs> well, when he when he does manage to deign everyone with his presence, he, he looks very bored on stage, and I I just kind of associate that particular basis with a uh, oh god I'm so I'm so too cool to be playing this bass in this incredibly successful band. That's the vibe I get from him. It's not a good vibe. A lot of indie bands had that around about that time. Like enjoy being in a band. How do we get onto this? I don't know. Oh, if... denying you the chance to be in the Killers, which didn't happen. And nor did nor did this really either though no, and Ivan wasn't really denied the chance he was just asked to leave and that's a, that's about it really but it does make for a good central conceit to the film and yeah. Neil does tell Glory about this earlier on in the film and she reacts to him and she says wow that, that is a massive thing to not yeah. have told him so I do get it so what does he do what does he do to, to Neil uh, he punches him yeah which, which makes sense and also kind of it's like a, a sort of an echo to the fact that Bands do have scraps on stage, much like you too, because there was a time when uh, Edge had to punch Bono in the face because he was shouting at Larry for Larry's kit was falling apart basically, and he was trying to fix it with a set of screwdrivers. <laughs> and Bono didn't know where Larry was because he couldn't see him, so, so he went got over and picked the drum kit. Yeah, picked the drum kit up. So Edge lamped him one, which is just a great story, and it shows that the Edge has got these hidden like reserves of wild passion. He's like a, a deep lake, you know. Placid on top, but with like monsters beneath. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Edge, if you're listening, get in touch. <laughs> to say what? To confirm I, or I deny? No, I, I don't know if that's a terribly flattering description for Mister the Edge. 
Well, I think he's plastered on top with hidden depths. So that's a great description. We didn't talk about this. How weird did you find it that they were talking about Dave and Paul? Um, it's all right. We've got Dave. He knows what to do. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a good way of doing it because you need to do that because then that has more impact when they say, oh, we're changing our names. Yeah. I don't think the guy who played Edge was particularly good either. But he doesn't really get many lines, to be honest. No. So there could have been, the, the thing that annoyed me about this film... There wasn't enough U2 in it. You wanted this to be about U2, though, didn't you? Yeah, I could have dropped the whole Neil and Ivan story, <laughs> yeah. actually. I think, that, I think that the Neil and Ivan story is a better film because it, it's it's riddled with failure. Of course. In, in the 80s, U2, not so much. And it, it has peaks and troughs and it follows a particular film logic. You know, yeah. there's, the, there's always that building up of expectation, then suddenly another big flaw occurs. So I get that. Okay, so back to where we are in the film. So now... Uh, Everyone finds out that Neil has slept with Hammond's wife. Uh, Gloria dumps him. Uh, he's kicked out of the band. He gets punched in the face. He gets punched in the face, and Danny Macken wants his money back. Yeah, this is when uh, Plugger, a film, a, a character we've not talked about very much, turns <laughs> up again, and he's been this recurring um, thug character. There's a very similar seen. character in Sing Street. Oh yeah, yeah, there is actually, yeah. Mm. Who eventually is um, becomes the roadie, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, F- yeah. Fair enough. So that's a, that's apparently a um, a well known kind of stereotypical character. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so Neil doesn't really know what to do, so he goes back to Dublin. His life is falling apart. Um, the band, I believe, are still touring. But they don't really they kind of gloss over that. Um, mm. uh, he's and he, he, there's Joshua Tree posters everywhere. U2 is back, yeah. coming home. Uh, this is takes us back to the start of the film. Um, he's kidnapped by Plugger. Yeah. Being driven back to Danny, uh, Danny Macken. And as they, as he's being kidnapped, they drive past Bono getting out of a car. Yeah. Uh, and go into the, the launch party. Which is, it's a bit weird really because it has that, this is where the film started and it has that kind of flashback bit. And it has Neil kind of monologuing, saying like, "I always knew I'd be famous," um, but it these two realities don't sync up at all. I mean, this didn't happen anyway in real life, but the film's start bit doesn't really sync up with that bit when it actually happens in the story. You know, you don't see you don't see Plugger, and you, it's it's just a bit confusing, really. I mean, maybe they've just withheld that information, but I found it a little bit messy, to be honest. Yeah, it could it could have been done better, um, but I'm going to excuse it as with Neil being drunk, at least he may be on drugs. But there's very there are drug references in the film, but the, yeah, very few. And he's also just fueled by this mad ten year problem that he's been yeah. trying desperately to to achieve the same amount of fame and glory and success. Really, oh, yeah. um, I thought it was good that. There's that moment early on when they talk about John Lennon, and they say it's a, and obviously Neil puts his foot in it because everyone's crying and he thinks it's all about him basically, um, <laughs> but it's to do with the death of John Lennon, and the editor says that's how you get famous nowadays. You just pull a trigger, so that is then a seed which all the way through the story you could think well he does have that root. You know he could kill Bono and he would get not the same amount of success because obviously Bono wasn't isn't and probably never will attain the same iconic status as John Lennon. I can't think of many people who would do, really. No. In rock history, maybe Elvis or someone, you know. 
but it, it is that option is open to him. And then he references, he says, I always said I'd be famous. So you think, oh, well, maybe he'll do it. Obviously. Yeah. Do you think, um, I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, so we go to the Joshua Tree party. Mm. Um, Neil has a gun. He crashed, he, he made uh, Plugger crash the car. Yeah. Got Plugger's gun. Uh, and he's in the, in the, 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 is it the, what do they call it? Press conference. It's not a press conference. It's the um, oh, the, the launch listening... party. Yeah, launch party. Well, there is a press party. conference, and um, I mean, Bono makes some makes some jokes. He again, he's very self-effacing. So he he makes a joke about him, um, you know, it being small, being short there, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of small jokes about Bono. Well, because he's for a rock star, he's short, and not only is he short, but he tries to convince people he's not short but by wearing it, lips. It's like the only thing you can pick Bono up on—the fact that he's he's short. Well, there's a few things people pick him up on, but appearance-wise, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think it's just because rock stars, are, I mean, unfairly, are considered that they have to be tall. I mean, it's not—it's not fair. But, but that's most the case. of them are quite small, aren't they? I think people are smaller than you think, but that's just because they, when they're photographed so much on stage, it's always done from, in a way to make them look bigger, to, to exaggerate them, and they, because they are larger than life figures. Mm. Josh Homme's massive from Queens of Stone Age. He's a, he's a tall one. Um, but this kind of brings us to the conclusion and uh, the, the the final scene, which I really actually did want to talk about. Uh, the final scene is where... Wait, 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 just wait. We've not really... There is that moment. It's in. It, it's inside the actual Joshua Tree um, party when he's holding the gun, and it does look like he's going to kill kill Bono. Yeah. And then, what do you think? I was going to ask. What do you think is the is the reason why he doesn't do it? I mean, the film is kind of very anticlimactic all the way through because you know for a fact he's not going to kill Bono. So it's kind of a bit. Mm. Mm. But but we'll leave that aside. What's the moment? Because he's he's crying. He's very emotional. This is his friend. Do you think it's just that realization? I I think you know the the, the idea of killing Bono is uh, is kind of a catalyst of like okay, this is something I want to do, but I've not got what it takes to do it. It's another example of Neil not being able to achieve what he wants to do. Mm. So I think that that's how it works in context of the film. Yeah, it's just another example of him not being that person. But this, but maybe, but well, obviously in a good way because yeah. because he doesn't go through with with that deed, which you know he would he would always regret, and it wouldn't be worth doing at all. He would get famous, but in a pointless way. And I think yeah, he realizes this is behind the the hat and the sunglasses. This is a man. Yeah, and I mean, it's at that moment when it's Paul Hewson. Yeah, and he it's needs still the guy that he went to school with, and he needs to see through that level of fame at the most difficult time for him because Bono's literally signing autographs when he's being asked to do that, and you know, pictures of his face of the album and whatnot, you know, and that's so Neil has to try really hard to actually get through all that rock star shell and see that there is a man and a friend underneath all that, which is it's a good way of doing it, I guess. It, it does it does work quite well. Um, so yeah, so then they end up back back in the company of uh, Danny Mackin again. Uh, I wanted to talk about the taxi scene with Bono. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The taxi. The taxi. That's a good scene. Um, now this is a scene that gets a lot of flack for Bono coming across as too nice. Yes. 
but this is a fictional take. This is a cartoon-like world, and I think I think this is the bit where Bono um, is represented as the media godlike figure. Yeah. Um, Bono is playing less of Bono and more of that, you know, grand omniscient character. Yes. Um, there's a bit in in the in the in the, the scene where Bono is saying. Uh, ten years ago, we didn't know we were joining you two. We were just another school band. We were just, you know, four guys playing, you know, playing guitar. Mm. Uh, this is this is the bit with uh, I, I, when Ivan's talking to Bono in the taxi, isn't it? It's not Neil. This one. This yeah, it's bit. Ivan. Yeah. Yeah, it's where Ivan's uh, Ivan's caught up, and and Ivan looks at him and went, "I don't know if I could have been in a band with you, you know, mm. like I would, because that means I would have had to have been in a band with you." And I just it's it, it really brings home that idea of these are school friends that okay they went on di- very different journeys, but they still have that base liking of each other. They're still friends with each other. Mm. Uh, but I think that that really calms uh, Ivan down when he says, "Look, we didn't know we were joining you two. Mm. They were just another band. They only became you two. They might have been called you two soon yeah. after that but they only became you two it's really starting at the Joshua's tree that's when they started mm. to get massive yeah and the the it's so much in a, a game of luck really as well isn't it really and, and things lining up in the right kind of way I always wonder how if, if there are such things as parallel universes what other bands what are the big bands you know what's the Beatles if things have gone slightly different mm. you know if Lennon had never met up with McCartney if you two had all gone to a different high school because someone must have come into the you know the kind of the the rock stage to fill that up so i wonder who it would be and it is a matter of luck and i think i think bono's accepting that i I always think about that with um adam being born in england edge being born in wales Mm. and then they all came to dublin just at the right time it's it's really strange i don't really believe in cosmic rhymes or anything like that but it's just it's such a lucky coincidence for them. Yeah, I guess so. But it's history, isn't it? So it had to happen the certain way, and that's the way it did. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. Well, that taxi scene, uh, the, the, the three scenes I would really take away from this film are the chip van, the bus scene, and the um, the taxi scene. I, I think that is where the heart of this film lies. Fair enough. Um, I've not picked the top three. <laughs> These like our sweetest things from the, from the film. No. All the, all the best bits are in the trailer. I mean, that's that's what I would say. Um, there's a, there's a, just a bit of dialogue that got in my head, and I don't know why it annoyed me so much. But it's when Ivan's being forced into, the, well, they're both being forced into the the boot of the car. Yeah. And it kind of is typical of this film and the way it handles dialogue. Um, you know, Ivan shouting out loud, saying he's being at gunpoint put into a car, and he's knowing that he's probably going to die. And he says, um, "I should be on top of the world now, but I'm going to die, and it's your fault." Again, and it's just like this is such a, a cartoony way of writing. It's it's a it bit is, stupid. It is a cartoon. It's a comedy. Mm, okay, well, comedies are meant to have good resolutions, and I think the end of this film is is pretty poor. The actual end. So the end yeah, up, yeah, end up with Danny Mac, and, and he gets held uh, on pain of death to write um, to write his story and to try and clear his reputation with the press because Macam is 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 more concerned about his reputation at this point than than the money. So he ends up basically being a slave and not being able to make the gig at Croke Park, which they want to turn up, having previously turned it down. 
and the the bit at the end of the film is them running towards this bus and not not making it and falling over in a field i just i thought it was a bit just very underwhelming as an end did you like that bit yeah it wasn't a great end i have to admit do you think um and i'm pretty much done talking about the film now do you think it would be a better film if he killed bono It'd be more. It'd be a more adventurous film. Um, I mean, because by that point we're so far out of reality mm. that we're we're only really loosely sticking by, you know, what times the albums came out. That's the only. Mm. That's the only timeline really in this film. I think it. I think it would have been a very adventurous choice, but I also think that it would have completely flummoxed audience expectations because. Audiences, by and large, when they see something that says based on a true story, I think they are more generous with the credibility, and uh, sorry, the credulity than 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 they should be. Really, I think once they see based on a true story, they think, oh well, that's probably happened. That probably happened. That probably happened. Yeah. Um. So t- if he did shoot Bono and it was this horrible, gory scene of Bono, you know, with his head exploding all over these fans, it would be very, very um interesting as a direction choice and i think people would be incredibly shocked but it wouldn't make for a good film it would just be a... he could have shot him and not killed him mm, that's under that's underwhelming that's that's not the redemption catharsis and that's not the sheer violence could have like, been a surprise. flesh wound <laughs> it would have been a rubbish end to the film i think <laughs> um any other key scenes um that you think uh, we should talk about should we just sum up now i don't think so i think i know i think we should sum up i I like the film. I thought it was consider- considering how well I know the actual source material. Mm. Um, I I like it. I, I like the film. It was it was a fun romp. It was like mm. it felt like somebody, you know, like when a, a stand up comedian will make a joke about something you re- you really know a lot about. Yeah, and you're like, oh, finally, I get that sometimes with with wrestling, and and there's a, a lot of comedians now who talk about games exclusively yep um, and it's like that little niche so if I found a comedian that was stood up there talking about U2 and Bono I'd, I'd love that mm. uh, so it had that similar it had that niche appeal to me like this is a subject I, I like and feel a lot about yeah it certainly does have that, that appeal and look I knew as soon as I saw the trailer for this film I was going to watch it Mm. I just feel that I've I've probably got it's probably my fault that I've got the wrong expectations. What I want is a really in-depth documentary about the early years of the band. Even I, I I've read, you know, Into the Heart and sorry, not Into the Heart. Yes, Into the Heart and and uh, Unforgettable Fire and things. And you know, I've read stuff about the early band, but I'd like to see that documentary done in the same way they did the, from the Sky Down, which was a great documentary. Um, a couple of people have, have shared their thoughts about this um, on on Twitter. So, uh, you two then and now, uh, Neil, he said, uh, it was okay. I suppose if you left all hope and expectations of a potential Oscar winner at your doorstep, uh, but had a feel of a made for TV amateurish vibe about it, which I, I mean, I, I do agree with that. Definitely. Um, I pretty much said as much for this review and, uh, Stephen O'Regan or Reagan, um, has said, couldn't get in, couldn't get far into it. Cringy. Good premise though. And I think, think maybe a, a few people, and a lot of reviewers thought this was a good idea. It just wasn't ex- executed very well. And I think that might be where the rewrites and the kind of... I don't know, the pa- the pacing's a bit weird all the way through. There's a lot of series of mini 
many kind of mistakes that are made. There's not one huge big thing that's kind of episodic, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a bit weird. Um, Maybe if it was redone as a series, as a series, it could be done better. Um, With I don't, I actually don't think Kristen Ritter is very good in it as Gloria. I don't think she's that good. She's hot. That's that's, that's what, not a criteria for no, a good but that's actor. That's what she's the she's the she's the love interest in love interest. She's the she's the eye candy. <laughs> she is. Well, like, well, I think that's that's not a very good that's that's not a very good character. It's then, not a very feminist role, but that's that's what she represents. Well, she. I suppose if that was what she was looking it, for, it's, a, it's another example of something good and beautiful that Neil has, but he doesn't appreciate. Yeah, fine. I get I get that, but I also just I don't find a very believable i don't i don't think she's a great character to be honest overall um i'll 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 try and be nice about it okay so in summary <laughs> you don't have to i didn't write the damn thing no i know but i feel like I, I feel like once again i've been uh overly negative um oh yeah so this is this is one of the reviews uh donald clark for the irish times said this was a wasted opportunity um what we get however is a fitful noisy romp that never settles into a comfort comfortable rhythm uh, Tim Roby from The Telegraph says best in show has to be Peter Serafinovich whose brain aggressively insincere agent quits every scene with a zing I'll agree with that Peter Serafinovich was brilliant all the way through because he just chews the scenery and seems to be the one who has firmly decided on a tone throughout this and Danny Macken and Danny Macken is good yeah, yeah fair enough um, okay so to return to where we started where we were talking about fact and fiction and how Neil was saying you know it's it's this isn't meant to be fact and in, in a way it kind of doesn't matter I think that's a good place to kind of sum up because it's not fact and it's not really meant to be true. But I do think it is true to a particular type of feeling, which is one I feel quite familiar with, which is that idea of, well, things just drying up as age goes on, opportunities leaving you, particularly to be a rock star. Like you said, it's you know, it's a joke to imagine you can become a, any kind of rock star after 30. And I think oh, it's still do- got three years. <laughs> Well, you better get your skates on. Yeah. Um, so it, it it's good at summing up that feeling of failure and it does have that joy of what it's like to play in a band with people. They, they do get a bit of that in. So for the hundredth time, Sing Street is better at doing that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's look overall it's a it's it's a it's a strong six point five out of ten for me. Oh, I didn't even think of an out of ten rating. No, neither did I. I've just pulled that out of the air. I like it slightly more than you, uh, so I'm I I'll I'll go seven. So fair enough. Um, I think that's higher than a lot of people would go. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we should have a look what it got on Rotten Tomatoes actually, unless you already had a look at that. Uh, I've not done so. While Tyler looks that up, I will do some freestyle YouTube-based riffing. Um, not seen the tour. Not really been listening to the remixes recently. Certainly not been listening to Songs of Experience as much as I used to. Spoiler, we might do some of the bonus episodes off... Uh, bonus episodes? Bonus songs off that soon. How you getting on there, T? This is uh, taking its toll. I, f- I, f- I found the page ages ago. Oh, great. I, I just <laughs> thought I'd let you go. Um, but while you brought it up, we will be the next episode we will be doing will be the SOE and SOI bonus material yeah because we realize so, we've not really talked about that yeah there's a lot of stuff on there that we want to talk about and we haven't done it so we're going to put all the bonus material from both albums onto one podcast and we'll do that and that'll be the last podcast release before the big tour podcast comes um in october unless someone sends us a copy of captive yeah we're, we're trying to find a, cap- a captive 
and we can't, which is the uh, the film that Edge did the theme, uh, the soundtrack to mm. in 1986, I believe. We can't find a copy anywhere. So if somebody could certainly not do that for us, that'd be great. Yeah, that's true. Actually, if if someone sends us, or uh, you know, even just a decent link to um, that film, then we will happily review Captive the soundtrack. That will be a short review because there's not as much to talk about. Although I do love that album. Anyway, so T, what was that Rotten Tomato score? The Rotten Tomato score seems to be pretty good. It's fifty six percent. Well, yeah, it's not it's not so with bad. a um, an audience score of forty seven percent. That's not surprising that the audience score is quite low. I think a lot of fans were disappointed going you know going into this. They had high expectations and they were not uh, they were not met by the film. But maybe people were just looking for something something else, like I was. Uh, just looking at a couple of the reviews on um, Rotten Tomatoes, while Barnes and Sheehan are persuasive as squabbling siblings, the music biz mockery is blunt and obvious. Agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, can't do anything but agree with that. I think overall the music is a is a, is a big problem in the film as well, and it's it's because these songs aren't successful and don't have as much relevance as they should do that the film doesn't really hit its stride. There should be those moments all the way through where the lyrics in the song are mirroring what's going on in the lives, but it, because they're relatively tied to not particularly great songs, not bad songs, I mean, better than ones I've written. The soundtrack but, you know, on this film is actually pretty darn, gosh darn good, I'd say. When they're playing stuff that isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't <laughs> yeah. shook up or any iteration of the McCormick's, it's great. Yeah. Once again, Neil, if you're listening, big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's let's leave. We've just we've just gone over an hour thirty, so um, thanks for thanks for sticking around for this long. I imagine you'll be cutting that down a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. Once again, thank you very much for joining us uh, this time round. Uh, we will be back pretty soon with the SOI and SOE bonus material episode. So keep a lookout on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else for that. We thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you very soon. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us on facebook.com forward slash review to to you or on soundcloud.com forward slash review to or search for the review to podcast on iTunes. You can also email us at review to contact at gmail.com. Please like, comment and subscribe. Thank you.